Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here, as always, with Professor Akil Amar. Hello, Akil. Hey, Andy. Um, but um, we only we are always here together. But today we've got something special. Yep, we've got a special guest, and uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about him. But before I do, you know, the America's Constitution is sponsored by Everscholar, and we've talked about Everscholar in general terms. Uh, over the last year, and now it's 2022, and Everscholar is starting to roll out its programs, and so it, it takes you know practical form. Last year when we, we started talking about it, the courses are, were already sold out, so there wasn't really a lot of point in getting into the specifics. We just wanted people to know about Everscholar. Um, so now they're going to roll them out, so I thought our audience might be interested in, in hearing about uh, something that was announced this this week, which really has been several years in the making. And it's, it's a program in France, which is called In the Shadow of War, Europe and America, 1914 to 2022. And it's going to be from June 20th to July 3rd in France. And in part, you know, when, when, when we work with our faculty, I ask them the question, why would we want to go to France to sit in class all day? And of course, First of all, we're not going to sit in class all day, but we are going to sit in class for part of the day. And everything that we do in this program is actually going to answer that question. You know, we're going to spend the the first five days in a 900-year-old chateau, which has been maintained impeccably and is completely suitable for modern stay while maintaining, you know, all its, you know, charm and authenticity. It's a private home. And it couldn't be a better place to study the effects that, the war still has, and I'm talking about the Great War, World War One, not just World War Two, um, on the landscape, on the people of France. Not that they all live in chateaus, but using this as a as a central point and going to the towns around it and seeing how this actually has imprinted the landscape and the and the consciousness of the people in a way that maybe it hasn't in America, where America hasn't quite been invaded the same way as as uh, France was again and again. Um, you know, anyway, I've stayed there, as, by the way, as a visitor. It's, it's fantastic. And so we assembled a faculty for this program, which, no exaggeration, are really the, the greatest experts um, on European aspects of the war ever assembled. So, for example, we have Professor Antoine Prost, who was the head of the entire French commemoration of the Great War, working for the government, for President of France. And uh, he's a professor from the Sorbonne. Jay Winter, a Yale professor emeritus, um, also an expert on the world wars and on memory. There's actually a museum, um, which we're not going to go to, but it's a museum uh, in, in the area of the Battle of the Somme. That museum was actually designed by Jay Winter. Um, he also is a, a great author, and he, he wrote the screenplay um, for a documentary on the Great War called The Great War in Modern Memory, which aired on BBC and later PBS and won the Emmy Awards and the Peabody Award. Um, and we have Julian Jackson, who is a, a British scholar. Um, he's the biographer of de Gaulle, has written the definitive biography of de Gaulle, A Certain Idea of France, which is actually the best-selling book in Europe for 18 months, uh, in 2018. 
and John Thorne, who really single-handedly resurrected the history of the Irish involvement in the World Wars. So it's an incredible faculty. And after those days on the, uh, in the French countryside, we'll go to Normandy and then on to Paris, where we'll see things like the deportation from Drancy, Fort Mont-Valerien, which is where you went for them to shoot you, uh, the Museum of the Liberation, Père Lachaise, and so forth. So, you know, on site with the great experts, incredible readings, and by the way, some pretty good food along the way too. <laughs> so, Akil, you ready to go? Um, so, um, whether I'm able to go or not, because I, I got to start working on um, uh, the sequel book this summer um, to The Words That Made Us, um, I just want to say one or two um, things about what you just said, Andy. Um, you said the podcast is sponsored by Ever Scholar, and that's true. But cards on the table, our audience really needs to understand that you are ever scholar. L'état, c'est toi. <laughs> so, um, and you are the podcast too. And so if they like the podcast and your intensity and your curiosity and your range and your seriousness, they're going to like ever scholar. You bring in amazing people and we, we do it together, you and I, but we bring in amazing people like Jesse Wegman this week and next week and, and Gary Hart um, um, for, uh, uh, in our in a recent episodes and you know, all the way back to, to Bob Woodward, who I think may have been our, you know, among our very first um, uh, guests and, and, and of course, Philip Bobbitt and Neil Katyal and, and on and on and on um, and um, uh, uh, Nadine Strauss. And so, see so you, we brought great people on the podcast and asked them really interesting questions. And that's what you're doing with Everscholar. Um, both this podcast, which is really your brainchild, even though, you know, you nicely put my name um, uh, in it, um, America's Constitution. Um, the podcast is your brainchild, and, and so is um, Everscholar. So, so of course, this would be sponsored by Everscholar because the podcast is sponsored by you. So that's what our audience needs to understand. If you like the podcast, you're going to like Everscholar because you know, you like Andy um, and his um, and his range and, um, and, and, and interest. The second thing that I'm just going to say, just a little bit of a teaser, is um, I happen to know that Jay Winter ha- has an amazing blockbuster um, uh, theory that he, the world doesn't know about yet. Um, I'll just give you a little hint. It has something to do with Churchill. Because um, Andy may be writing a book about church at some point. Andy's smiling right now, but oh my gosh, you will all, you know, know about this idea when Jay fully goes public with it. And and I don't know if he's going to share it with the the Ever Scholar group or not. But if he is, you're going to be in on one of the bigger claims ever about, um, frankly, the the history of the 20th century um, uh, uh, before everyone else. Indeed. You know, I have to say that, uh, thank you for, for what you said. Uh, you know, I don't think that I am Everscholar, but I do think that I am representative of Everscholar. In other words, you know, I, uh, certainly a lot of it is, is my, my, I have a lot of people working with me and helping me. 
But um, listen, I, I, I go around in this podcast saying, I'm the father of the nuclear <laughs> option. I'm the father of the national popular vote in your state compact. I'm the father of you know 18-year term limits. And our audience is thinking, shut up. Enough with this you know, father stuff. But you are the father of Everestyle. You, you're, you know, you're the, um, the creator of it, um, well, the, uh, the founder. Thank you. Well, I'll take some ownership in it. And I do think it's true, though, that if the audience likes some of the ethic of the podcast – you know, that we're serious about, about these things, you know, we can, we can enjoy each other, but at the same time, this is, this is serious stuff and we want, and we know you take it seriously and we respect your time for investing it with us. And that's every scholar is the same way, but let's get to our guest today. Uh, I want to just pose a couple of questions for the audience to think about. And these are questions that our guest has uh, sort of prompted in our minds recently. Okay. So, how many amendments are there to the United States Constitution? Now, I'll give you a multiple choice here. 28, 27, 26, 1, or 0? Okay. And here's another question. Who is the archivist of the United States? And why is he in the news? Okay. And why do we care about these questions? Well, because... Recently, they were teed up by our friend Jesse Wegman. And Jesse is a member of the New York Times editorial board. He's served at the Times since 2013. And he writes editorials for the Times on a variety of matters of interest to this podcast, including the Supreme Court, uh, electoral rights and systems, legal affairs, and democracy in general. Um, In fact, he's the author of uh, the book Let the People Pick the President, which is a a detailed argument for eliminating the Electoral College and moving to an election of the president by popular vote. He's a 2005 graduate of the NYU School of Law and has uh, taught at NYU Law over the years. In fact, perhaps he's taught my daughter-in-law, who was a graduate of NYU Law. And uh, prior to that, he attended uh, Wesleyan University as an undergraduate and received a master's uh, from BU, and he was a Soros Justice Fellow in 2010. And then in between, there was a lot of other stuff, but uh, we'll, we'll get on to, to hear what Jesse has to say. So it's a, it's a real pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Jesse Wegman. Thank you both for having me. Great to have you. And Akil, you've known Jesse for some time, isn't that right? Yes, he's a friend, and uh, he's been a, actually, frankly, a publicist. Um, uh, there's an overlap between some of the ideas I, I floated 20 years ago on uh, which became which were an early version of what later became the national popular vote interstate compact on the on the one year anniversary of Bush versus Gore I was actually in my bathtub this is a an Archimedes moment sort of and and I shouted Eureka because I, I, I just this I this kind of wacky idea came to me and I and, and I just kind of threw, uh, put uh, in a, a message in a bottle tradition, um, just uh, wrote a blog post uh, about it. And, and that eventually became a version of the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. And, and Jesse has written about that in, um, in, in compelling uh, detail. That's at the heart of, um, of his uh, book that you, that you mentioned. So, so Jesse and I are uh, partners in crime. I don't know how much we're going to agree or disagree today about um, uh, some of the, the interesting issues of constitutional amendment, but um, we are really honored to have him on our uh, podcast. So thank you, Jesse, uh, for me too. Well, 
Thank you. And I'll just, I'll just say that uh, it should probably uh, go without saying that I've known Akil for far longer than he has known me. Um, I, I actually sat in on uh, one of your con law classes 20 some odd years ago uh, when I was trying to get into law school. It was, it was immediately after September 11th. It was, uh, it was in October because you, uh, at the end of your uh, lecture, which I found, of course, stimulating, you uh, talked about the importance of balancing uh, the study of, of law and the study of the Constitution with uh, a family and family life. And uh, out of nowhere, the door opened up and a whole uh, raft of children dressed in Halloween costumes <laughs> was, uh, <clears throat> was brought in by their, by their uh, teachers. And uh, you, you picked up at least one of your children and, and held them. And the, the, the class, of course, was swooning. And I said, you know, I like this guy. <laughs> uh, but then, I, then we didn't speak again for quite a while. And, and then I've been in regular touch with you and you you know Akil has been an, an incredible and generous resource to me on so many topics over the years that I've been at the times and I've um, relied on his wisdom and, and quoted him uh, and quoted his words in pieces and also in the book on the Electoral College uh, for a number of years now so I'm really I'm honored to be here and uh, n not a little bit intimidated but but happy to have this conversation. And of course what prompted this was a, a uh, an op-ed that uh, Jesse had on January 28th um, in the uh, New York Times, entitled, Why Can't We Make Women's Equality the Law of the Land? Now, one question, did you write that title or did a headline writer write it for you? So as anyone knows who's in journalism, headlines are a constantly, in, in the days of the internet and of, of Google searches and of search engine optimization or SEO, as they call it, headlines are a very contested topic. Uh, they do what's called A-B testing, where they'll try out different headlines at the same time on different audiences and see which one does better. Um, I had actually written, I don't generally consider myself a good headline writer. I leave that to, I think, the brilliant minds in our social media department, and they virtually always come up with something better than I could. This time, I kind of liked my headline, which was um, the original headline, which I sent in with the piece, which was uh, the Equal Rights, the Equal Rights Amendment is now the law of the land, period, isn't it? And, uh, and, and I just, I, I liked that, that little rhetorical flourish. Uh, apparently the readers did not. <laughs> so the social media team very quickly, uh, determined that it was not really picking up where it should have. They tested a few others, and this was the one they stuck with. It wouldn't have been my choice personally, but I always defer to them. And, of course, it, it did much better after they changed it. So. Oh, that's, that's so cool because I actually – um, I encountered it as that as the isn't it uh, version, and that's what caught my eye. So, so I, you know, I, I guess I, I was you know in the control group or or, or whatever. So you were one of the first readers. I think it yeah. was up as that for a couple hours. Yeah, when they yeah, saw that, when that, they that's saw that that's, that's when I saw it. I said, you know, <laughs> gee, you know, who knew? I, I didn't know. And then but they said, but he says isn't. I said. Wow, that's a really cool tease. Uh, I, I, I agree. And I'll just say one other quick thing, which is, you know, headlines can can make or break a piece. And they can also, of course, you know, mislead people. Uh, they can be um, confusing for people who don't read the whole piece. Uh, and another piece that Akil was uh, of mine that Akil was deeply uh, involved in, uh, I got in a lot of trouble for the headline, which was actually not my headline, uh, but it was one about the line of presidential succession and the federal law that sets the line of presidential succession. Uh, Akhil and I very much agree on the on the point that 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 law is 
crazy as it is currently written and should be rewritten. Um, and uh, I, I quoted Akil at length in that piece, and, and I relied on the on the on the paper that he and his brother wrote. Uh, and then the headline went up on the piece, and it, it was a long and I thought thoughtful piece for a general audience about a complicated legal topic. And then the headline on the top of the piece said, "Nancy Pelosi should not be the president." <laughs> <laughs> so, as you can imagine, in 2018 or 19, that was not a very welcome introduction to a piece of writing in the New York Times among New York Times readership. So I got a lot of flack for that. People calling me a Trumper and someone who couldn't, couldn't, you know, didn't like strong women, which would surprise my mother and my wife and my daughters and everybody else in my life. But anyway, headlines are, headlines are, a, 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 can be a dicey topic, but uh, our headline writers are the best. So. And, and let me just jump in on this, because this isn't what, of course, we're going to be eventually talking about, except Jesse has already brought in women's equality in, you know, in an interesting way. And, and maybe headline writers, you know, some of them maybe aren't as sensitive to that. So Neil Katyal came on our podcast twice. Um, uh, Neil and I wrote a piece together um, all about uh, when uh, Paula Corbin's Jones was uh, uh, suing uh, the then sitting president of the United States, Bill Clinton. And um, Neil and I wrote a piece for the New Republic about the complexities of a lawsuit against a sitting president, um, where our proposed headline was advice for the president's legal team. Um, and some um, uh, uh, writers at, at the New Republic who had, a, you know, a, a mental you know, age of 16 or something, if that, um, captioned it, pounding Paula. And it, hadn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't about her at all. Right. It was about a general issue. I, the first time I saw that was actually, you know, when it appeared, I had a literally violent reaction, um, 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 a violent sort of stomach reaction um, uh, to that uh, because I, I knew that so many people were going to have the same visceral reaction and they were going to you know, blame me for that. Um, uh, so um, a version of that appears in, in a book that I wrote collecting some of my op-eds over the years and I changed the title and I actually have a, a footnote saying this originally appeared under a certain title, um, and uh, um, but I wasn't responsible for that um, at all. On my um, CV, um, Pounding Paula doesn't appear because I refuse to be affiliated with this misogynist, um, but maybe eye-catching um, uh, headline that, that, that some 16, mental 16-year-old wrote um, and that I'm getting to this day blamed for. Well, I get to write the headlines for our, uh, or the titles for our podcast episodes, uh, <laughs> And uh, I think uh, some of my favorites are we had uh, Row, 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 uh, Starry and Stenchy. <laughs> and then we had uh, The Purpose of the Truth, which was our, uh, our, our interview of Bob Woodward. And, uh, you know, anyway, a whole bunch of other ones. So, uh, so it's, it's fun. But actually, I, you know, to get into the substance here, I actually prefer the headline that, that you came up with, uh, Jesse, because it indicates... Um, that there's some uncertainty here about about the the status of women's equality, or really more specifically, the ERA. Um, and uh, so, why don't you uh, you know give us uh, sort of the the condensed version of what of what this uncertainty is, and why it exists, uh, if it exists. 
Well, and and of course, the the uncertainty was the essence of that piece. As Akil uh, suggested, there are many other avenues and many other angles to take with regard to the ERA as an as an issue. It's been on a century long odyssey and uh, filled with interesting twists and turns and complications and frustrations. And this was just one that I I actually had been uh, really fascinated by for a while, ever since reading the. Um, the, the 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 law review study done by David Posen, the Columbia law professor, and one of his colleagues uh, that looked at the history of Article Five and the way that amendments have almost never, actually, uh, or arguably never, uh, adhered to its strict terms. So, what struck me then uh, was to say, oh, you know, the ERA keeps getting slammed for being not in accordance with the Constitution, right? It's easy for its opponents to say, oh, well, it missed the deadline. And, oh, well, five states have rescinded their ratifications. And sure, they can say that. But what I learned, I think, or what I appreciated so much more after um, reading that study was that you, a similar thing could be said for virtually every amendment that we accept as part of the Constitution without question, uh, from one through twenty-seven, uh, and and so just to just to give the quick summary here, um, when the ERA uh, was was finally proposed in the form that it now exists as a as a pending or perhaps not pending uh, amendment um, in the early nineteen seventies, it was very quickly. Uh, passed by two, two-thirds. They required supermajority of both houses of Congress, as, as Article 5 requires. And then it went out to the states, and it very soon uh, garnered thir- about 35 uh, state ratifications. Of course, as we know, a, a constitution, uh, an amendment to the Constitution needs both two-thirds of bo- both houses of Congress and three-quarters of the states, which is 38 at this, t- at this moment when we have 50 states. Uh, so 35 was three short of 38. Uh, they needed three more states. Uh, there was in the proposing language of the amendment, but not in the text of the amendment itself, a, a point of law, which I think we, I'm sure we will get into at some point today. Uh, there was a seven-year deadline uh, that Congress had put on the ratification of the amendment. Um, a de- deadlines were a new a practice that had started in the, in the early 20th century and had become the norm by the 1970s. Everyone accepted them. Uh, the Congress even extended, uh, controversially extended that deadline when it was when the end of it was approaching, and uh, three states were still they were still three states shy. Uh, they extended it until 1982. Uh, the, no more states ratified, so in 1982 it was still three states shy, and the supporters of the ERA uh, acknowledged defeat. Um, there was a general acceptance that this fight was now over and it would have to be carried out elsewhere. Uh, then uh, jump forward a few decades to 2016, Donald Trump is elected on an openly misogynistic platform. Uh, and I think there was a uh, sort of, sh- it was a shock to the system of so many people in the country who had sort of either forgotten about the ERA or who had come to accept uh the sort of basic play, the state of the play with the law. And uh, there was a new, a renewed uh, effort to get those last three states uh, to ratify, regardless of the fact that the uh, deadline had passed back in 1982. So then three states in the last four years uh, very quickly passed in Nevada, Illinois, and then finally Virginia in 2020. Why I wrote this piece um, at this moment is that uh, January 27th, this past Thursday, was... Um, by by one way of looking at it, the day that the that the Equal Rights Amendment became the Twenty Eighth Amendment to the Constitution. Why do I say that? Because in the text of the amendment itself, it says this amendment shall take effect two years 
after ratification. And if you treat ratification as the day that the 38th state signed on, thus clearing the three quarters bar in Article Five, it was January 27th of 2020 when uh, when 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 Virginia became that state. So two years after that, January 27th, 2022, you could say you could argue. I, I think with colorably <laughs> that the 28th amendment is now uh, that the ERA is now the 28th amendment as in the constitution. Of course, it has not been recognized as such. One reason for that, I say a technical reason in the, in the piece that I wrote is because the archivist of the United States, the head of the national archives and records administration, a man named David Ferriero has declined to do his job as it is outlined in uh, federal law, which is to, to certify the amendment. Once it has cleared those two bars, or let me be clear what the federal law says is according to quote, the provisions of the constitution. Uh, and I think that could be read to mean what the constitution says. Um, he won't do it because of a memo that was, uh, produced by the Office of Legal Counsel in 2020 at the time that Virginia passed its uh, ratification, saying that, sorry, too late, it's game's over, uh, it is too, they're, they're, the deadline passed, Congress can set deadlines, and uh, nobody disputed that back in the 70s and 80s, and it's, it's just too late. If you want to pass the ERA, you got to go back to square one. Uh, and so my piece was about the dispute over whether a, whether the archivist can even do that, whether uh, another body, another branch of government, whether Congress or this, the courts, the federal courts can step in and what role they would have. Uh, and, and just over the what I call the this now Schrodinger's cat of amendments, an amendment that appears to both exist in the Constitution and not exist in the Constitution at the same time. And it's a real dilemma. And it's one that we're facing now for the first time in our generation, uh, uh, but not the first time in the last a uh, few decades, the 27th provides a, an intro, a fascinating counterpoint, which we'll get into. Um, but th- I just found it both because I'm sort of infuriated along with so many others that that we still don't recognize the formal legal equality of more than half of our population in 2022. I'm furious that it's this hard to get this thing in the, the Constitution. And I was also just fascinated as a legal slash political matter in uh, the ways that amendments are or are not uh, eventually adopted by the society and included in our uh, national charter. So that's the quick background, and I'm sure we're going to get into a lot of various parts of that, but I hope that summarizes it well enough. Okay, well, I suggest that we, thank you for that. Uh, I suggest that we get into it first from a uh, sort of a more general constitutional point of view rather than worrying too much about what the ERA itself does, and we can, if we have time, we can, we can get into that um, afterwards. Um, but this seems to raise questions for uh, amendments in general. Um, now, we could go at it in any particular order, but I, I, I was fresh in my mind in listening to you was this question about the archivist. Now, I'm not saying that it's the most important issue, but of course, the archivist is not mentioned at all in the Constitution. So the, the procedure, and, and in fact, you know, if you read Article 5, why don't I just read it, because um, it's short, so our, uh, our audience can, can reference it. Um, the Congress, whenever two-thirds of both houses shall deem it necessary, shall propose amendments to this Constitution, or on the application of the legislatures of two-thirds of the several states, shall call a convention for proposing amendments, which in either case shall be valid to all intents and purposes as part of this Constitution, 
when ratified by the legislatures of three-fourths of the several states, or by conventions in three-fourths thereof, as the one or the other mode of ratification may be proposed by the Congress. And then there's a, something about the Fugitive Slave Clause, basically. Um, and also it says that you can't... And the uh, Senate. Yeah, the Senate, right. Or the Schmenet. Um, that, little, that little detail. Yes. Um, but that just doesn't apply here. Um, no. Okay, so... Uh, so that's and, and the, not, not, not so much about the fugitive slave clause, but the interest, right. Yes, right, right. Slave trade. My, right. my, slave, my, slave my trade, right. Right. The, the slave trade. Um, right. Uh, but at any rate, that, that doesn't apply at this point. So, you know, what I noticed here, first of all, is that Congress's role seems to end at which to, at which point, uh, once it's proposed the amendments. Okay. And it do, doesn't really specify anything else that Congress needs to do at that point. And doesn't say anything about the archivist, who is, a, after all, a member of the executive branch. Um, and the executive branch has no role at all here um, that's specified. So uh, maybe, uh, Jesse, what, what's your sense of, of the role of the archivist under the... Because after, you mentioned federal law, but, you know, is there anything here that would really imply that federal law would trump anything in this, uh, in Article 5? So, so the short answer, and again, I'll, I'll certainly defer to, to Akil on this, but the short answer is no. I mean, you're you're absolutely right. There is no uh, there's no role at all that is uh, that is contemplated not only for the archivist but for anyone in the executive branch um, in in the uh, in the process of amending the Constitution. And so, uh, you know, there is a history to why the archivist became the person. I think it was originally the Secretary of State had a role in this, uh, but also that's a member of the executive. Uh, why and why the executive branch has any role in this at all? I think is a is a great question, and I did not intend. And I, I think in retrospect, when I look at the piece I wrote, it was very long to begin with. It was longer than most pieces I get to write. And yet I still didn't, um, I think, make sufficiently clear that that is a really legitimate dispute that someone reading this might just think, oh, well, it's all up to the archivist. I had said the technical reason for this, you know, intending to kind of a shorthand for saying this is not, you know, this is only one part of, of why we are still arguing over this. It's obviously not all in the hands of the archivist. Uh, and he clearly doesn't think so, right? Because he has, you know, the OLC memos that he's relying on are saying this is for Congress to, to resolve or for the courts to resolve. But I, I absolutely agree that, that the archivist uh, is not and should not be uh, the final word on whether or not a constitution, an amendment is part of the constitution. Akhil, you recently uh, met with the National Archives uh, people, isn't that right? I've, I've worked over the years with the archivist. He's a lovely person. He recently announced his resignation, in part because maybe he didn't want to be on the, the hot seat. And I'll just point out this was in, in close proximity to, to Jesse's op-ed. I, I, you know, he might have announced it slightly before Jesse's op-ed, but I think he wanted to get out of Dodge while the getting was good. Um, he's a lovely person, and I should tell the audience um, a little bit of background. I've, I've mentioned my relationship to Jesse. Jesse mentioned um, David Posen and his co-author, actually Tom Schmidt. I'll get into my relationship with them um, as well. They're scholars. So I've done various events at the National Archives. Our audience can see some of them. I, I did one, for example, a, an interview of Clarence Thomas uh, way back when, just the two of us, um, and David actually uh, introduced us at, at the beginning. I talked about how I myself, basically, when I look back on my life, decided, I think, with, with the benefit of hindsight, to, to 
to go into constitutional law when I was 10 years old and my parents took me to the National Archives and I was really struck when I saw the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights and the Emancipation Proclamation had a very big impact on me. Um, more recently, I've actually been a, an advisor to the archives as they, they're redoing um, the, 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 the museum, the, the, the building in Washington, D.C. on Constitution Avenue, um, right next to the federal courthouse. Um, in fact, not the Supreme Court building, but the, the United States Court of Appeals for the District of, of Columbia. Um, so, and Andy, you and I, on the publication day... Of, um, uh, of my latest book, which I haven't plugged in the last 30 seconds, uh, The Words That Made Us. Um, we started that day actually at an AEI event down in Georgia. Um, you were driving, and, and you, the audience should know that Andy, <laughs> Andy actually is a pretty um, a fast driver. <laughs> um, uh, we, we, we were getting all the way um, up eventually to, to, to Princeton, but on the way we, we, we saw our friend Bob Woodward, who's been a guest on the show, but we also stopped at um, um, James Madison's Montpelier to do an event that was co-sponsored by Montpelier and the National Archives. That was on the publication day of the book, May May 4th. So um, I have a lot of connections to the archives. Um, uh, I, I really love the place. Um, here's the uh, my answers to the questions you posed to Jesse. You mentioned that there's a congressional statute, and um, the statute mentions the archivist, and, and Jesse mentions this. And you might say, well, where does Congress get the power to pass any statute at all? Arguably the necessary and proper clause of this, uh, the same clause that um, um, gives the Congress the power to decide how many justices they're going to be, because the Constitution doesn't say so, what the rules of criminal procedure will be and civil procedure applicable in the Supreme Court and in other federal courts, how many lower federal court judges um, they're, they're going to be, how many cabin officers they're going to be, and how we, we divide the um, responsibilities among cabinet officers. These are all things that Congress is, in fact, invited to do under the last sentence of um, the longest section of the longest article. The longest article is Article 1, the legislature. Longest section of the powers of Congress, Section 8. And the last sentence of Article 1, Section 8 says, Congress shall have power to dot, 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 make all laws necessary and proper for basically finishing, completing the Constitution, filling in the gaps. Um, and arguably, because Article 5 isn't very specific on certain things, like who decides what, arguably, Congress gets to do this by a statute, and the statute says the archivist. So, you know, that's the argument for David For The argument on the other side is, yeah, in the ordinary course of things, if it's merely ministerial, it's kind of his call, um, but... Um, where there actually are difficult constitutional and other legal questions, you know, it's truthfully probably not, it's above his pay grade, and or that's how much he might feel. Um, he himself is um, a lit major, I think Northwestern. He then um, had some uh, distinguished military service in, in, in the Vietnam War. He got a master's degree in library science, um, but he... It, it might feel because um, he's a you know a certain uh, diffidence in um, making very highly contested and contestable decisions on a legal issue when the the the, the advisory body to the president um, Jesse referred to as OLC that is the Office of Legal Counsel um, has suggested that this isn't valid for various reasons we're going going to go into. Too much time has passed, and I would argue also certain states have rescinded, and those rescissions actually need to be 
um, uh, paid attention to. So, so I understand his diffidence and all that. One final thing, Jesse mentioned the OLC memo in 2020. Of course, our audience should remember that was when Donald Trump was president. In his op-ed, he also mentioned that more recently, the Office of Legal Counsel actually said, hmm, maybe it's a closer question than that earlier memo said. They didn't repudiate the earlier memo, but they did kind of soften it just a little bit and say, in any event, we're not at all sure that it's ultimately the decision of the Office of Legal Counsel to to make the final decision. Um, I think they suggested Congress might possibly want to weigh in again on the issue. Um, Eventually, courts might take for themselves the last word on this question, although since we talked in an early episode about precedent, the precedents do suggest, some of them at least, that, that Article 5 and issues of whether ratification is valid or not raise political questions, quote unquote, um, that are um, non-justiciable and not properly for courts to decide. There's at least that suggestion in a, a landmark decision called Coleman versus Miller. So, so it's not clear whether courts are going to weigh in, whether Congress is going to try to jump back in again. OLC actually said, oh, we're not necessarily the final decision maker, even though we issued these memos. And so, Jesse, you did us all a great service in kind of pointing out this is a bit of a mess. Well, and, and Akil, can I just add one note to your uh, to your summary there, which is that uh, Congress has uh, weighed in more recently. The House of Representatives has passed a resolution that uh, purporting to eliminate the deadline, uh, uh, retroactively eliminate the 1982 deadline. And just today, the Senate, or let's put it this way, uh, 51 members of the Senate, which in other countries might count as a majority, <laughs> but uh, here is uh, uh, numerically irrelevant because uh, there's a filibuster. Um, 51 members of the Senate agreed with that today and agreed to to uh, to call on, uh, to, to, to eliminate uh, retroactively the 1982 deadline. So in a sense, you have majorities of both houses of Congress. You don't have filibuster-proof majorities uh, of, the, of the Senate, uh, but, but Congress is, at least members of Congress, are attempting to take action to resolve this issue. And unfortunately, not one of them in the House or the Senate actually had the decency to pick up the phone and call me on this, because actually, <laughs> I thought about what it. Would you have said, what would you have told them if they did? I would have said, don't do it. And I'm and why? so pro-ERA Um, um, In fact, I think actually, truthfully, the Constitution already has an equal rights amendment. Um, um, It's the 14th Amendment and 14th plus the 19th equals ER. We can talk more about that. But um, uh, I've long been on record as saying that um, once the deadline passed, it passed. I'm not even sure it could have been extended even um, uh, the first time around, first time. but especially after it's lapsed, the first time actually they, they purported to extend it um, before the, the end date of, of the original resolution. So, so arguably that was a little different. There, it never expired at all, but, but after it, it, it genuinely expired, um, if this were the Princess Bride, I would say it was dead, not mostly dead, or actually... All dead. Um, um, it's more complicated than that for ratification purposes, but I'm not sure it actually needs to be reproposed. So we, we can talk about um, that in just a bit. But but I think um, the deadline has passed. It can't be retroactively revised. Um, the, the ratification count should go back to zero. Um, I'm not sure it needs to be repassed 
by House and Senate, because maybe it, that's still out there. It's proposed, but the ratification, for reasons I'll explain, I think goes back to zero. And even if it didn't, I think until 38 states have said yes, uh, a state is free to change its mind. It can say no and then later say yes, but it can also say yes and then later say no, and we should count its most recent um, uh, verdict. Um, and so, so I think actually that various states that purported to rescind, um, we need to actually treat those rescissions as valid in the same way that before a Senate vote is announced, a senator can change her or his mind either way. I voted no, but now I want to vote yes or the other way around. So those are two independent reasons why I'm very skeptical that ERA um, really can be claimed to um, already be part of the Constitution. And I don't think Congress, Congress, you know, it may have lots of powers, but it actually doesn't have the power, honestly, it doesn't have the godlike power to rewrite history. And I think efforts to try to undo um, that earlier deal, smack of a kind of um, retroactivity, um, and I'll explain so, um, uh, with analogies in more detail, um, that, that really are violative of principles of a fair dealing and the rule of law and and so so in a word this seems very stenchy to me even though I'm pro ERA and that stenchy of course is an allusion to my friend Sonia Sotomayor. Let's try to take it. There was a huge amount of stuff in there, um, yeah. each of which I think requires <laughs> requires its own uh, you know back and forth to explain the arguments yes. on each side. <laughs> so so why don't we start off with the question about about a time limit on the amendment. Right. So, so, so can you? So here's here are some of the questions that I think, you know, are contained in this notion of time limits, which is, you know, can an amendment contain a time limit, you know, within itself, of uh, to to limit its adoption? Yes. Not, well, hold and, on. And, and, no, no. This, this, yeah, just, okay. this is okay. Right. Yeah, yes. Um, and this is like when someone um, asked the the, the, the the preacher if he believed in infant baptism. He said, "Believe in it. Good God, man, I've seen it done." So let's take the 18th Amendment to the Constitution, the, the Prohibition Amendment. In the amendment itself, you know, here's what – so Section 1 is all about prohibition, um, and Section 2 is about congressional power. Here's Section 3. This article, that is this amendment, shall be inoperative unless it shall have been ratified as an amendment to the Constitution by the legislature of the several states as provided in the Constitution within seven years of the date of the submission hereof. To, uh, 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 to the states by the Congress. So there's an amendment that actually was universally recognized as being operative um, that had under its own terms a time limit. Um, so you could surely put a time limit in the amendment itself. And that raises a nice philosophical question. Here, here's the question. You could say, well, Article 5 doesn't say that. So Article 5 says even if it was ratified in eight years or 10 years, it's still valid if it's two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate, three-quarters of the states. You could, and, and no mere amendment can change that. You could say. And I would say, fine, even if you say that, here's the way to think about it. So fine, the 18th Amendment is formally part of the Constitution. It's operative. But Section 3, Emily Latella-like, tells you if it's ratified more than seven years after the proposal, Pay no attention to sections one and two. It's kind of you know self destruct Maybe technically, formally, it's in the Constitution, but it's inert. It means nothing at all. So surely the answer to your first question is, yes, we've already done that. You can have a time limit in the amendment itself, and presumably that, that you know, can't be changed. It's, it's part of the amendment. 
Uh, yeah, so I, I want to say, so I think just to complicate Akil's way of proposing that, that Congress has this power, I'm not I'm not di- disagreeing with you so much as I just want to complicate it. Uh, and obviously, Akil would say this, too, if if he had continued. But that that 18th Amendment was obviously the the, um, the time limit in that 18th Amendment was challenged uh, in, a, in a lawsuit. And the Supreme Court weighed in on this matter in 1921 in the, in the Dillon case. And Dillon I quote that. Right. And I quote that case in the op-ed because it's a fascinating example of the ways in which extra constitutional conversation affects the way we actually interpret the Constitution. So um, so in that case, uh, you have the Supreme Court saying, basically, first of all, uh, it says, you know, there's the there's the baseline question. Can Congress actually do something that the Constitution doesn't say explicitly can do? And the, the, the court says, I'm paraphrasing here, what is not expressed can be implied. Um, well, why can certain things be implied uh, that are not expressly granted? Why can certain powers be implied that aren't granted? Well, obviously, the answer is that there we have a there's a general understanding of what powers a government needs to carry out uh, the, 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 the duties that it, it has been tasked with and that it has been explicitly given. And we, as a society, agree on uh, generally what those powers are. If we don't agree, maybe they don't get those powers. But in this case, clearly Congress could do it. Why could they do it? Because, quote, ratification is but the expression of the approbation of the people, right? It's ratification is saying that the American people agree to amend the Constitution in this way, and thus any proposed amendment, quote, must be sufficiently contemporaneous in that number of states, meaning three-quarters of states, to reflect the will of the people in all sections at relatively the same period. As I say in the piece, that's that's a reasonable-sounding position to take, and that's why people accepted Congress's power to set time limits. And yet, we have the 27th Amendment, the last amendment we have yet ra- we have ratified in the Constitution, which was actually proposed 200 years before it was ratified. And we can talk about the story behind why that happened. But clearly, although the 27th Amendment contained no explicit time limit anywhere in it, there is no question that the founders who wrote it, that James Madison, who drafted it, didn't think that it was going to be ratified 200 years later. So I think it, it does complicate this question of what does it mean to have to require contemporaneous consent in the country, which I think is a reasonable argument to make when you are actually admitting to the Constitution amendments that absolutely unquestionably violate that requirement. Oh, I'm so glad you said that because... You're not quite right, and and I, I, I'm I'm I, I'm going to be blunt with the, the audience. This is a Marcus Constitution, and Amar has studied the Constitution more than the justices in the court who weren't scholars on Dillon versus Gloss. Um, and and so I'm going to actually because I thought it through, and they they were corporate lawyers. So let's just take a step back. I'll take a deep breath. <gasps> okay. So oh, I really I've really pissed Emil off this time. <laughs> no, 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 no. So um, here's why the 27th Amendment is easy and why it's it relevant to the rescission question. In a Mars world, you actually can pull things back. And if you don't pull things back, you're continuing to basically, as time passes, endorse what you did before. So here's why I say the 27th Amendment actually originated. Um, has the Second Amendment to the Constitution, okay? It was actually proposed in the first Congress with James Madison, and, and then it gets ratified, you know, a couple hundred years later, and people say, you know, what's up with that? Here's my claim. Because I believe in the power of rescission, I think Congress at subsequent times could have 
pulled back the, uh, their proposal and yet never did. And states that ratified early on, let's say in 1792 or 93 or what have you, could have later rescinded their ratification, but didn't. And unless and until they rescind, they continue to be a yes. So there is a certain contemporaneousness, but it only works. Yes, it only works, um, Jesse, if we count rescissions, which Akil does count. Um, and that creates a certain kind of contemporaneousness. Why? Because the current Congress continues to support this original second, now 27th Amendment, by not pulling back the proposal. It's a nice question, what vote they would need to pull it back? Um, do they need two-thirds of each house? That's a little complicated. Do they need actually one-third plus one of either house? Because if it's one-third plus one of either house, then there's no longer you know two-thirds of, of each supporting it. I think that's, that's odd. I think I would take the position, and it's interpolation. The Constitution doesn't say these things. It's just the best way of completing the Constitution. That's right. I wrote a whole freaking book called America's Unwritten Constitution because the Constitution is filled with these questions, and there often are right answers, and the right answers are more likely to be found by someone who's studied the whole Constitution over many years, and what about this, and what about that, and what happens if the Chief Justice drops dead in the middle of a presidential impeachment because it says the Chief Justice shall preside, and there are a gazillion of these little questions, and there are ways, general law ways, of actually filling the gap in the gaps and completing it. So uh, uh, Amar would say that basically um, contemporaneousness is achieved if at any moment Congress can pull back the proposal by a, a majority of the House, a majority of the Senate, but doesn't, and at any moment a state that said yes, even if it said yes a long time ago, is free to say no, and we pay attention to the most recent expression, yes or no, um, of each state and of Congress until the magic moment of vesting, until the 38th state today, because Jesse's right, there are 50 states, you need 38 today. When that happens, oh, that's a magic moment like, you know, midnight and Cinderella and all sorts of things go poof, and, and, and then the deal is done. Um, just like at a certain point, you're just standing up there in front of some people and talking, and then at a certain point, they say, I now pronounce you, and oh my God, you've just done it, okay? There's a magic moment of vesting in a wedding or when there's offer or when acceptance happens, when a deed is signed, sealed, and delivered. In law, we pay a lot of attention to these special moments when juridical relations change, a merger of two corporations, uh, the sealing of a commission, and so on. So, and, but until that happens, you can take it back, just like when you're voting in the House or Senate, until they actually bring the gavel down and, and the vote comes to a close, you can change your mind. Can I just yeah. respond? With, I, so I, I want, I, I am not challenging in any way the depth or breadth of your constitutional knowledge. I'm really, what I'm asking, I think, is, and, I, and I, I'm not entirely convinced by the answer you just gave, is the meaning of contemporaneity, if that is something we care about. Obviously, the same Supreme Court decision that I just quoted also said it is untenable that what became the 27th Amendment 80 years later or whenever, however long later, uh, could possibly still be alive for that very reason. So if the Supreme Court is the final interpreter of the meaning of the Constitution, Which it why? is not. And, oh, okay. I've said that in every podcast episode we had for years. So, Jesse, you've got to listen to the podcast. So <laughs> no one, seriously, who knows anything about the Constitution, in my view, 
thinks that way. We're departmentalists. The Supreme Court is not the be-all and end-all. And even if it were, Coleman versus Miller, which came after Dillon versus Gloss, um, dialed some things back. And more recently, let's actually be straight, the 27th Amendment appears in hundreds of millions of copies of the Constitution everywhere. It's not a figment of my imagination. Congress itself... You know, and you know this. Jesse you know, says it in the article, in fact. Yeah, I, right, I, I accept, I accept so, it. So, so that means that Dylan versus Gloss actually isn't quite, <laughs> you know, the be all and end all in the stupid. This, these are a bunch of railroad lawyers who, whose um, work product was repudiated across the board by the Warren court. This is the Lochner era court. And so, yes, yes, yes. I believe that precedents that say silly things actually don't bind. That's what we talked about in the row, row, row episode. So, so to you, um, the- so Dylan, 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 they went way out. It was a case about the 18th Amendment. So, right. They went way out of their way to talk about a lot of things that they didn't need to talk about. I gave you the smarter answer, which they didn't give. Here's what I said. The 18th, it was easy because even if you think, even if you think that an amendment can't really add to the requirements of Article 5, the explicit and implicit, you know, two-thirds, two-thirds, three-quarters, fine. Um, The 18th Amendment is is valid if it's ratified 10 years afterwards, but Section 3 tells us to disregard Sections 1 and 2. So it was easy. Now, I'll tell you why, actually, that that case was litigated, because I know the background of Dillon versus Voss. Who litigated that case and why? Do you know? No Socratic uh, inquisition of our guests is permitted. (laughs) Yes. This case was litigated, a whole bunch of others, because the liquor lobby, you know, um, was, you know, involved on on one side. They also tried to, you know, um, litigate against uh, women's suffrage, because actually a lot of women were dry. Lots of stuff going on there, but I don't accept, you're right, Every single word um, that the Supreme Court has ever I, pronounced. I, I, I'm not. sorry. I, 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 stand, I stand down on that, and, I, and I, I don't mean to be glib. I think maybe a better way to ask that question is, do you, first of all, do you believe that, so, so Congress's power to enforce or to set time limits on constitutional, proposed constitutional amendments existed uh, before and after Dillon and has no bear and Dillon has no bearing on whether or not Congress actually has the power to set time. Limits. So is here's that, the, the, the piece that I, and, and if that's true, sorry to interrupt. If that is true in from where did Congress get that power? Right. So the, and the who determines that, that the piece that I actually think is the, is the best thing on this is not any Supreme court decision. It's actually an article by my law school roommate, my dear friend, Michael Paulson. It's in the Yale law journal. It's called toward a general theory of article five. Um, and I don't agree with everything in the piece, but I agree with a whole bunch of things. And, and here are some things, you know, that, that I do agree with, that the best way of implementing, yes, you, you want a contemporaneousness idea. Dylan is basically right because an amendment is supposed to be an authentic statement of what we the people um, believe. And it would be weird if um, the House, you know, thought that an amendment would be a good idea by two-thirds um, in, in one decade. And the Senate actually thought it would be a good idea 20 years later, but by also two-thirds. And each um, state thought it would be a good idea one by one by one um, over a course of, of, of 200 years and then thought 
better of it, and each state, after saying yes, immediately said no. And yet, if we counted all of that over 200 years, at no time was there ever a real consensus that this should have been the Constitution. There was never a moment when you could say, well, Congress believes it, and almost all the other states believe it. Um, and, and, that, and Article 5 doesn't say that. Dylan is right. Um, but it's, it's the spirit of Article 5, the spirit of the Constitution. Yes, so I agree with all of that. My claim was that they didn't need to say that the original Second Amendment, which becomes the 27th Amendment, is invalid, too much time has passed, because here's an alternative way of getting at contemporaneousness. At any later moment, Congress can pull it back, or a state that has said yes can say no, and unless they do that, actually, um, the yeses start to you know, a- a- add up, and we just assume that a state that said yes uh, yesterday continues to you know, say, uh, believe yes today and tomorrow, unless they say otherwise. So the best way of achieving the contemporaneousness idea that is, I think, part of the spirit of the Constitution is to give effect to rescission. So let me say it one other way. So, so here, is that if you're a movie fan, this is the Terminator problem. How do you pull back Arnold Schwarzenegger? And unless you allow rescissions, here's the problem. The amendment's out there, and you can never pull it back, ever. Ooh, that would be problematic. Each state ratifies it in a, in a fit of drunkenness. The next day says, oh, my God, you know, we were hung out, you know, we were, we were drunk, now we're sober, we rescind. And if every state did that at some point over 200 years, and you only counted the yeses, and you always disregarded the noes, even though at every given moment – um, let's imagine that there are 50 states for, for the whole thing. Every state except one, 49 states at every single moment were opposed to this. The yeses would keep adding up like a ratchet, and the noes would be disregarded, and you'd end up eventually ratifying a constitution that no one really wanted at any given time. So the best way of vindicating this deep idea is to permit rescissions at the ratification uh, uh, stage. Um, I, in addition would allow Congress to pull back the proposal itself. Um, And it matters to me, and we're going to talk talk about the time limits, whether the time limit is in the amendment itself or in an accompanying resolution, because if it's in the amendment itself, the whole proposal lapses. If it's in an accompanying resolution, here would be my idea. Once the time has passed in the accompanying resolution, the ratifications go back to zero, um, but we can, we can, like, they can start up again. And in ERA, my view is that um, most of the states that ratified um, t- 20 years ago, 30 years ago, they'd, they'd ratify in a heartbeat today. So, Akil, can I just ask? Better, and that would be can, better. Akil, wait a minute. Let me ask you something. You just said you have no problem with treating a state's ratification from 1791 as being still in effect today for the 27th amendment. And yet you're saying just because of a, a few words in a proposing amendment, a proposing clause of, of an amendment that uh, all 35 states or all the 35 states that ratified prior to the, uh, to the deadline ending go back to zero from 1972. Because Jesse, you went to law school and so did I, but we, but we learned different things in contracts class, and I will never make a contract with you if you take the following <laughs> position. I, I won't, okay? Because it's just like basic fairness, like trying to rewrite history. You promise one thing, and then in this hinky way, you, you, you kind of change the, the rules. This is not the way to actually amend the Constitution and move us toward a great principle. So, so let's just take a contract, okay? You say, here's an offer, and um, it's open for um, a certain amount of time. 
and I say, I, you know, um, accept, and, and, and unless you actually confirm, unless we do the deal, my acceptance lapses at a certain moment. Because if you, if, if, if we don't sign the deal, you know, then I'm going to do it with someone else. So, so I'm allowed, surely, to say, I accept, but up to a sunset date. Now, here's my view. Every state that early on ratified the ERA ratified it on the understanding that that ratification would lapse at a certain point. And if they had said so explicitly in their ratification instrument, of course we'd have to actually treat that as valid. The mere fact that they they didn't all explicitly actually um, uh, uh, repeat that language. Well, South Dakota, South Dakota did a version of that, right? Okay, said, but but it, to, to my mind, you know, un, unless they specified otherwise, they're all saying we ratify under a certain set of understandings. And and again, let me, let me let me put it differently: an amendment to the Constitution, precisely because it's supposed to actually come authentically from the people, should not be adopted in a fast and loose way by you know, trying to rewrite history, change the ground rules, that will not actually bring us together. That will actually, which the Constitution is supposed to do, that would actually pull us apart. Now, can I prove to the Constitution that's the purpose of the Constitution? No, I can't. But I can tell you, I know the spirit of the Constitution. Because I believe passionately in the substance of ERA, I don't want it to be adopted in this way that tries to rewrite history and, 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 and play fast and loose and say, oh, you didn't say mother, may I? Um, you didn't say Simon says. And, and I also believe it because I actually, I want two things out of the amendment. I want women's equality, but truthfully, I think we already have women's equality, you know, basically in existing constitutional text, 14th Amendment and 19th Amendment. I'll talk more about that in a minute. 14th Amendment isn't just about race. It says everyone born in America is born a free and equal citizen, black or white, but also male or female, gay or straight. The 19th Amendment adds to that political equality above and beyond civil equality. So I want equality. I actually think today, truthfully, Supreme Court case law pretty much gives me that. I'm not sure what ERA changes. But here's the other thing I want. I want a national movement. I want a commitment. I want to go back affirmatively to square one because I actually want a great mass movement contemporaneous. I want actually young Americans to have an opportunity to, to, to have their voices heard. They weren't even born when ERA was proposed. I actually think it's a better way of, of vindicating the, the, the spirit of ERA, truth be told. Um, and I want some people to vote against it so that oh. I can actually vote against them on election day. So Akil, you know, so you've said this is what you want. And then earlier you've said that your system with where rescissions are allowed and so forth is the best system. Yes. But those, that's not the criteria, is it? Or those are not the criteria for whether something is actually the co- constitutional, like whether you think it's the best system or whether oh. it's what you want, okay. you know, or so Fair forth. So, so in okay, the- okay, no, no. That's why I wrote a whole freaking book called America's Unwritten Constitution because none of the words in any of the provisions actually make sense without implicit background understandings. I am appealing to basic background understandings, like how a contract works, how voting in the House or the Senate works, which is you can actually change your mind until the gavel comes down, how voting in all other assemblies work. Just natural first right principles is if I say no and later say yes, we count 
till later. Yes, which we do. Various states, uh, you know, for example, Rhode Island and North Carolina first said no to the Constitution, and then they later said yes, and we allowed them in. In, a, in. If you're proposing marriage to someone, you know, and they first say no, they're allowed later to say yes. And if you're still, and, and if you've changed your mind in the interim, okay, well, then there's not a meeting of the minds. Every romance, actually, you know, he's, you know, wants to go forward, but she's not ready. And then she's ready, and and and, and, and Ross, you know, and Rachel, he's interested in someone else. Akil. But they have to be simultaneous, but these are natural, you know, Basic principles okay, of law. But, can I, okay, can I, but let's let Jesse get in on this. But I just want to, I just want to step back for a second, just to be clear. I think, as you saw in the op-ed I wrote, I did not actually come down on the side of either um, on either the question of time limits or or rescissions because I think those are arguable, and I think you yeah. make, I think you make perfectly good uh, and, and well-considered points about both. I think here's maybe, I'm trying to articulate where where I'm pushing back or wanting you to clarify your point, which is you're talking about first principles. You're talking about big overarching values that supposedly we all hold as a society and that we all, as a self-governing society. I think you, if you asked, the approbation of the people matters, right? That is why time limits matter. The Supreme Court said it, you, maybe it's not binding, but it was the, it is a, it is a reasonable way to interpret the constitution and the powers of Congress therein. You say, well, it's clear because there's no time limit. So the contractual terms hold from 1789 all the way to 1992, whereas the, the, the contractual terms of the 1972 amendment don't hold because it said seven year time limit and everybody ratified. Right. Oh or my God, ratified. it matters what they said. It didn't, yes. I know, I know, I know. But let me just let me just finish my point. I think to the extent that regular people's interpretation of the Constitution matters, as we know it does, in whether constitutional amendments are adopted or not, and 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 how the Constitution is interpreted. Don't you think that the, the most people would look at that situation and say, "Wait a minute, two hundred years, two hundred years since that amendment was adopted. Everybody who had any role in adopting it is dead, is long dead. Why are we bound by uh, you know ratification votes from 1790, whereas like?" You know, ratification votes from people who are still alive today don't count. I, I get the contractual point, but I guess I'm asking that broader question right. is. And, 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 here, and, and, and here's the answer. First of all, and these aren't people dead, on the 27th Amendment, Congress concurred just, and, and I know you talked about this in peace, the House held a vote in 1992, the vote was 414 to 3. And in the Senate, it was 99 to 0, saying, we think this is valid. OK, um, and the reason that um, uh, in, in part that that um, stuff that happened long ago, the, the Constitution is binding, even though the people who voted for it are all dead. A law, this, uh, the Sherman Antitrust of 18 the Act of um, uh, 1890 is binding, even though everyone who voted for it is dead. So here's my thought. Certain legal actions are valid until they are actually repudiated. A law, old or new, is valid until it either sunsets under its own terms, uh, like the Patriot Act, um, or is repealed by a later law. A constitution or an amendment is valid under its own terms, you know, unless it either sunsets under its own terms, the 18th Amendment, Section 3, or is repealed by a later amendment. So, too... Um, and this isn't my idea so much. This is Mike Paulson. He, he's the one who gets the credit for this. I'm just saying 
I think he's pretty clearly right about this. Um, so, too, congressional proposal is out there until it's pulled back. Um, it could have specified in the proposal itself that the sunsets, the 18th Amendment did. But if it doesn't do that, it's valid until it's pulled back. Ratifications are valid till they're pulled back. And, and contemporaneousness is achieved because you're not pulling back. Now that I've explained, and, and that's why the 27th Amendment today is easy and obvious. Every, you're right, hundred, ordinary people count. Hundreds of millions of people think it's in the Constitution. And House was 414 to 3. Senate was 99 to 0. And therefore, at least some of the dictum, uh, the dicta of Dillon versus Gloss can't quite be taken fully seriously because, um, and by the way, everyone in Dillon versus Gloss, you know what's true of them? They're dead. Okay, that's true of cases, that's true of statutes, that's true of constitutions. So Dillon versus Gloss has to be, in my view, right. It's basically right in its vision. Contemporaneousness is the ideal, but the best way to cash that out is to credit rescissions. Can I I just ask a quick question? I know you want to move on to the 14th Amendment. No, 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 this is great. No, 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 I'd love to talk about the 14th Amendment, too, because I I had a whole section in the piece on it that got cut, and and it deserves more attention. I want to ask this. In 1992, in an alternative universe, let's say, I I think it's pretty clear, or it seems clear from the history that the archivist at the time uh, certified with the full knowledge that 24 hours later there was going to be a 4-14-3 vote in the House and a 90 98, 99 to zero vote in the Senate uh, uh, approving of this amendment if, say, Congress had not given that indication and if, say, therefore, the archivist had not certified the 27th Amendment, would you ne- would you be of the mind that, okay, the 27th Amendment is not a part of, we, and it would not be part of the Constitution, and you would think that was a reasonable outcome of that amendment? So I think Congress made the right call. Um, we haven't talked, you've talked about Dillon versus Gloss. There's this later case that's um, all about whether too much time has lapsed. There was an, um, uh, an amendment um, authorizing Congress to regulate child labor. Um, and the claim was too much time has passed. And so people actually brought a lawsuit saying too much time has passed. The Supreme Court weighed in this case called Coleman versus Miller. I believe it's 1939. Um, I used to teach it actually to my students. And in Coleman, they... Um, um, modif- they, they talked about Dillon versus Gloss. They didn't repudiate, but they modified a little bit. Here's one of the things that they said, and I'm not sure it's right, um, but they basically said it's for Congress to actually um, decide close and contestable issues under Article 5. I'm not sure that that's right, but in, in, in the same way that a lot of people say, I do, that it's for Congress and not the vice president to decide contested issues on the Electoral College. It wasn't Pence's call. It should have been for Congress's call. So Coleman says it's basically for Congress to decide. That's why Congress did weigh in 414 to 3 in the House, 99 to nothing in the Senate. I think they made the right call precisely because the earlier states that have ratified hadn't rescinded, and that was a, 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 a perfect the sensible um, and the uh, way, and the, indeed the best way to cash out contemporaneousness. But so, there was legal controversy over it, and what if? And the Congress could could theoretically have gone another way. Legal controversy over everything. I know, but I'm saying, Cong- my, since you mentioned Dave Posen, who was my student, and his co-author, you didn't mention by name, but Tom Schmidt. Tom Schmidt was not only a student, but my head TA. So Mike Paulson is my roommate, and we, we used to talk about this stuff all the time. And he wrote the best article on this topic in the Yale Law Journal. David Posen and Tom Schmidt got 
this uh, interesting topic about all the, the procedural issues that have bedeviled every single constitutional amendment over time because this is my obsession and they're my students and they heard all of this. So, but, but here's what they didn't do truthfully and what I am purporting to offer. They said rightly, there have been issues about every amendment. I'm saying, yeah, but the fact that there are issues does not mean that net-net there's not a better answer and a less good answer. So here, for example, are some of the issues that they tee up. Two-thirds. Two-thirds of what? Well, you say two-thirds of each house. Well, is it two-thirds of the entire house or two-thirds of the quora? Well, it turns out, actually, um, just, and, and, and that's an issue, but... When you think about it, the better answer is two-thirds of the quorum because that's basically how legislatures work. Does, does the two-thirds of the House have to be in the same Congress as the two-thirds of the Senate? Because it doesn't quite say that. Yeah, because it would be weird because actually when it comes to a law, it, it's not good enough that there's a majority of the House you know, in one Congress and a majority of the Senate you know, 10 years later or something. So there are always issues. Um, but... Um, and that's where, what Dave Posen and Tom Schmidt are arguing in this re- re- right. recent conversation. But and that doesn't mean, because there are always issues, that um, anything goes, that, there's a, that each side is equally you know, strong. I agree. I, I'm, I'm, well, all I'm asking you is if in an alternative world, Congress, for whatever political, complicated partisan reasons in 1992, had not made that, you know, advisor that had not passed that resolution saying we approve of this. And therefore, the archivist, knowing that there was going to be a mess, a political mess, and, and deciding, as David Ferriero did, he did not want to be in the middle of it, rightly so, had not certified the amendment. Would you think that the, that, that amendment, therefore, was now, would, the, would that amendment be included in the Constitution? And if, how would you think if, about it? If he had, if I were um, being asked for a legal advice, I'd say, yeah, I actually think it's valid. Um, okay. And Congress hasn't weighed in, but if Congress weighs in the opposite side, oh, that's going to be a bit of a problem. You know, will the Supreme Court weigh in? I don't know because Coleman versus Miller says that they won't, but maybe they will. Right. And and I'd want to know, Jesse. Look, okay. we're friends and we're asking good hard questions of each other. It it would matter to me why Congress thought otherwise. Okay, um, if it's doing it for just purely partisan reasons, I'm less deferential. If they actually had some you know, strong, good government reasons and they actually were able to articulate them, because, look, maybe Mike Paulson and I missed something. Maybe there's an argument on the other side that we hadn't heard. So, so if they had a good argument, I might change my mind about the thing. So in this alternative universe, this hypothetical, this counterfactual that you're, you're proposing, I would want to know why it is the case that, let's say, let's, let's say not only that they weren't going to certify, that they were going to vote 99 to nothing the other way. And Against, 14, right, right, three, the other. right. Why that's are a they better, doing that's that? That's a better hypothetical. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I'm trying to, you know, we're, we're friends and we're talking, we're trying to see the best arguments on each side. It would matter to me why they thought that. And, and they would have Coleman versus Miller arguably on their side because Coleman said, oh, Congress decides some of these things. But I'm not sure that Coleman was right. Okay, so I think we've basically put on the table uh, many of the issues that surround the questions I asked at the beginning, namely, how many amendments does the Constitution currently contain? Uh, Is the 27th Amendment, which, by the way, has to do with congressional pay, legitimately part of the Constitution, considering that it was adopted more than 200 years after it was first proposed? I think we've answered that one. And while in one sense it was fairly straightforward, 
It also sheds light on some of the more important and perhaps more difficult questions surrounding the ERA or the would-be 28th Amendment. Since Congress has not conducted a vote on the validity of the ERA's ratification or lack thereof, although the House um, did have a vote, but I don't believe the Senate has, um, ERA's situation raised, has raised the issues of rescission, um, their validity, the proper treatment of them, of ratification deadlines and their proper treatment, of whether they have different implications or force if they appear in the amendment itself or in the accompanying resolution. You know, in this episode, we took the ERA's situation as a starting point for looking at the constitutional issues. And in our next episode, we'll continue the discussion with Jesse Wegman on this, and we'll look at where the ERA stands now, um, how its status might be resolved, and we'll also look at the substance of the ERA itself and see whether it says anything new that the Constitution, as already amended, doesn't already say. Uh, great. That reminds me of uh, a line from Gandhi, just to anticipate my own answer, which is that we we actually, in effect, have ERA, the 14th Amendment, plus the 19th Amendment, is in effect, uh, plus all the case law glossing, the 14th Amendment, um, which is about civil equality, birthright equality, not just black and white, um, uh, but also male and female. And then you add to that the 19th Amendment, which is that political equality, um, not just the vote, but um, a whole, uh, uh, voting in the legislature or holding office, voting in a jury. So civil rights, 14th Amendment, plus political rights, um, um, uh, as glossed basically by um, the, the modern court, um, led in part by uh, Justice Ginsburg, can affect already equals ERA. I still want to say it again once more with, with feeling, but there truthfully may be less urgency when it comes to the actual propositions of, of ERA, and and I, I think amendments aren't just about what they um, say um, uh, substantively. They're also about the, the the movement that brings them to life. And and I'm going to argue that it would be better actually to rebuild the movement. And and once you rebuild it, it might be useful for other amendments um, uh, as well as, as as ERA to create a grand coalition. But the line that comes to mind, you know, g- given that you know on this view we really kind of already have an ERA, 14th Amendment plus 19th Amendment. Gandhi was once asked what he thought of Western civilization. He, he paused for a moment and he said, I think it would be a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> because because we thought we already had it, you know, right. um, uh, obviously. Um, and um, so um, looking forward to next part two with Jesse Wegman. Yes, all this and, and more. Uh, as Jesse Wegman of the New York Times joins us in part two of this discussion. So we'll see you then.